with a good long vetting process, values become difficult to hide. Not that people are really hiding them, but when you're in that infatuation phase, you can kind of downplay the down, the bad parts of yourself and they're doing the same thing. And, and maybe you're speaking about your values in a way that's a little bit putting, giving them a, you know, shining them on just a little bit so that you, you give the impression that you're a better fit than maybe you are, but that stuff gets difficult to maintain with time. And then the values really start to come out and then you can really see what the person is like. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. friends. How are you? <laughs> it's been a while. I was just checking and I think it's been about, I think it's been over two months since the last episode. So right off the bat, I apologize for the extended absence. And it's not because I've been lazy. I've actually been more productive this year than ever. Uh, I've been putting out a whole bunch of new courses and new videos. And I've also got a new podcast, which is what I wanted to tell you about right from the start here. So some of you probably already know this, but for others of you, it'll be news. I've recently started a solo podcast. The name is Extremely Creative. Are you ready? The name is The Zachary Stockhill Podcast. So top marks for creativity for me. It's called The Zachary Stockhill Podcast. At this point, it's mainly the audio from my YouTube channel. In the future, there's a good chance that I'll expand it even more and put out more longer form solo audio shows on a number of topics which are very closely related to this channel, things like relationships and jealousy and personal development and all that good stuff. But I realized that a lot of people don't really watch videos on YouTube. And over the past, God, year and a half, I've really invested a lot of time, a lot more time into creating content on YouTube. And I realized that there's many people who aren't on YouTube but still wanna maybe consume that content. So at this point, I mean, I don't know how how many episodes there are on the Zachary Stockhill podcast feed. There's dozens and dozens, lots of stuff to listen to. So wherever you listen to podcasts, just search for the Zachary Stockhill podcast. And if you wouldn't mind, it would mean a lot to me if you could also subscribe to the Zachary Stockhill podcast and leave a rating and review as soon as you get a chance. On this podcast, on today's episode of Humans in Love, I'm joined once again by a really interesting guy, really great conversation today. His name is Dr. Sean T. Smith. Dr. Smith is the author of The Tactical Guide to Women, How Men Can Manage Risk in Marriage and Dating, one of my favorite follows on Twitter, as you'll you'll hear, with a lot of really unique and nuanced perspectives on issues relating to things like modern masculinity, the issues facing modern men, the red pill online community, the manosphere. And what was most interesting to me, and the topic that I'm always really most eager to explore with Dr. Smith how the hell to actually make the decision to marry someone? What should go into that decision? What should the timeline be? What are the traits? What are the values we should look for? And just how to approach this extremely consequential life decision of deciding to really settle down and marry someone. Really enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Smith today, and I hope you do too. If you enjoy this podcast, Humans in Love, please take a moment to let me know by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. I've already talked enough. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sean T. Smith. First off, Dr. Sean Smith, thank you for making time for me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Zachary. And I just mentioned before we started rolling that uh, I can't believe it's been over two years, I think about two and a half years since the last time we spoke. Uh, needless to say, a lot has changed in the world <laughs> since those <laughs> yeah, carefree days of 2018. Now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, those pretty. carefree days. Um, I mean, how are you doing? I, I've been asking all my guests, you know, what has this year been like for you? How have you been uh, surviving through this very bizarre time? Oh, the COVID year, you know, we're lucky. It hasn't really affected us very much. My wife and I both got COVID and it was nothing for us. And as far as the economic situation, we're just fortunate. We're in a good position and uh, a lot better than some people. So yeah, we, we try to help out where we can. 
but it seems like you're, you're out of the country, but here in the US, things are starting to get back on their feet a little bit, hopefully. I think we're looking at some really big inflation coming up, but otherwise, uh, you know, things seem to be okay. Yes, the money printer keeps uh, keeps rolling. <laughs> I've been concerned yeah. about that as well. Yeah, I think we all yeah. are. Yeah, I mean, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I would guess that you're an introvert uh, like myself. So I'm wondering, have you been doing with uh, with the social isolation? Um, we haven't been socially isolated, really. We've kind of lived our life pretty normally. Remind me again which yeah. state you're in. I'm in Colorado. Okay, so yeah. things have been more mellow there. Well, no, there's it's it's sort of average here for the states. That there are some people who are a little more concerned about it than others, and the people who are a little less concerned. Me being a psychologist, um, I think it's really important not to give in to anxiety, where anxiety is running the show. And that's that's a hard thing to know where the line is between what's reality with COVID and what's anxiety. But I tend to play a little more on the let, let's take some chances here and they're not putting other people in danger and, and so forth. But as far as our own health and just our own activity in life, there are trade-offs and balances between how isolated you're going to get and how much you're going to give up for the safety that you get in return. And we've done a lot of discussion of that and a lot of weighing it. And my wife and I are on the same page that we value freedom a little more than safety. And some people value safety a little more than freedom. So, yeah. That, that's where most of the disagreements uh, on all of COVID seem to break down is that distinction between freedom and safety. Agreed. Yeah. And cheers to freedom. I'm uh, yeah. generally sympathetic to your, your position. What about your uh, changes in your professional life? I mean, how has your professional life changed over the past year? Are your clients facing new challenges that you haven't experienced before? Or, yeah. How, how have things changed on that front? My practice hasn't changed very much because I tend to, I've, I've been moving toward working with guys on relationship issues and, and I have a line around the block, which is a good problem to have, I guess, but I'm having to turn a lot of people away. But from what I've heard from other clinicians that are working more on the front lines where I used to be, but I'm not so much anymore, is that there has been an uptick in at least last year. And I think it's, it's starting to come around now, but there was an uptick in the run-of-the-mill garden variety things that pop up in the mental health field when people are under stress. So addictions and substance abuse and uh, anxiety behavior, uh, various manifestations of anxiety, social anxiety. Um, and you're, you're going to see a lot more of that in the future, I think. I think a lot of people have become pretty isolated to the point where the anxiety is consuming them. And it's going to take some work for those folks to get past that, and I'm, which I'm very sympathetic to. But a lot of physicians and other psychologists are telling me that garden variety mental illness, there has been a spike in that for sure. Yeah, very worrying. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's talk about the line around the block of guys coming to you. I have a feeling I know something of why they're coming to you, but why do you think there's a line around, around the block of particularly men um, trying to reach out to you, looking for help. Well, as near as I can figure from the feedback I get from them, it's that uh, they're wrestling with issues and they want to speak to somebody who's a little bit, who's well-versed on these issues, somebody who's worked with couples and somebody who has spent some time in private practice sorting through these problems and helping people get past them. And unfortunately, a lot of the people in my profession are feminized and they are radically feminist, like the American Psychological Association seems to have been taken over by an ideology that is fairly extreme in its execution in terms of feminism and, and other aspects like critical race theory. And so if there's a guy out there that's fairly um, outspoken like myself, and he doesn't buy into the feminist ideology, and he appears to be somebody who's at least trying to think clearly, then of course, I mean, how many places are that like that are there for men to go? There's not very many, frankly. And there are a lot of wonderful psychologists out there. Unfortunately, they're not as vocally as vocal as I am. And so they're not as well known as I am. I wish they were more vocal because they too would have um, burgeoning practices. And if they were more vocal, maybe the field of psychology would start to list a little more in the back toward the center. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, not trying to pump your tires too much here, but you are a fantastic uh, Twitter follow just on the subject of you being very vocal and really taking a stand on a lot of these issues. And uh, you're one of the few reasons I log on to Twitter these days, just because I've really limited my time there. And so much of it is just such accessible, at least in my view, 
Um, but I wanted to quote on the note that we're talking about here, one of your tweets that really jumped out at me. So I'm quoting you on Twitter. The traditional and toxic traits that psychologists claim to be destructive are A, only destructive when exercised in a non-traditional manner, and B, precisely the qualities healthy women find attractive in men, unquote. Could you talk a little bit about that tweet? What are you getting at there? Well, do you remember a couple of years ago, 2019, I guess it was, the American Psychological Association came out with their guidelines for working with boys and men. And along with these guidelines, so what is a clinical set of guidelines? The APA and other organizations will put out clinical guidelines for working with certain populations or certain disorders or certain um, you know, clinical conditions. And they're not all ideological. Sometimes they're just really bored, boring, dry stuff like how to uh, work with somebody who's um, dealing with lymphoma. Not, not that that's boring, but it's very non-ideological. And here's what the best practices are. Here's what the research says. But sometimes organizations like the American Psychological Association will veer very far into ideology. And that's what the guidelines for working with boys and men were. So this is something that uh, you're supposed to abide by, a set of guidelines you're supposed to abide by if you're working with boys and men. Like I said, very ideologically driven. They come comes straight out of feminism. It comes um, out of actually decades of development in ideology. The stuff started back in the 80s, um, er earlier than that, even with feminism. And it has evolved into a, a pretty staunch ideology. So they put out the guidelines and they also put out this article that had a line in it that uh, said, traditional masculinity marked by stoicism, competitiveness, aggression, and uh, there's a fourth one. I can't remember what it was, but there are four qualities that they listed. And these are qualities that exist on a spectrum, but they said that these qualities are, are inherently destructive. I think those are that's pretty close to the words they use. So if you're competitive, if you're aggressive, if you are stoic, not, not the philosophy stoicism, but stoic in terms that you contain your emotions, which is a skill that everybody should have, that, that these are inherently dangerous um, behaviors, rather than saying, okay, something like aggression, it exists on a spectrum. So you can be aggressive in how you pursue your job at work, and you can do a really good job, and you can bring people along with you, and you can be fighting for something, or you can be aggressive in the home and bullying people around. There's just all kinds of ways that aggression can manifest, positive and negative. And so for the American Psychological Association, to come along and say that something like aggression is inherently destructive. Well, it turns out, you know, this is not surprising, but women tend to be attracted to the qualities that the APA is saying are destructive when those qualities are enacted in, in a positive way. So a man who is stoic, able to contain his emotion when everyone around him is falling apart, this is an attractive quality. A man who's aggressive in pursuing something positive, this is an attractive quality. A man who is... Um, so what were there was stoicism, aggression, competitiveness. That's one that they said is inherently bad. Well, what's what's bad about competitiveness? I guess it's it's bad if you are trying to prevent other people from winning. But if you are competitive in the sense that you're trying to build something in the world and you're trying to be better than you were yesterday, this is an attractive quality. So, so much of what people in the APA think they understand about men simply isn't how men work and it isn't what women appreciate in men. Not that we need to particularly be worried about what women appreciate because women appreciate us more and we're not worried about what they appreciate, which is sort of a Zen koan, but um, <laughs> they, they don't, they don't understand us very well. Psychology is a field hasn't had much interest in men really, except for what men are doing wrong for decades. And it used to be different. It used to be that psychologists, held masculine traits to be the ideal back in the 40s and 50s, but it, it transitioned to the point now where masculinity is seen as a mental disorder and femininity is seen as the ideal. And that's that's not healthy for, that's not healthy any way you look at it. Neither one of those stances was healthy, right? How about we just look at it as there's positive masculine traits and, and negative masculine traits. And when I say that, I mean traits that cluster more around masculinity and there are traits that cluster more around femininity and they can be destructive or they can be constructive and why not view it that way absolutely yeah i was just listening to an interview with uh, dr warren farrell 
And I've been getting more interested in uh, what he calls the boy crisis and the way it seems like a lot of um, the modern mental health industry, a lot of modern education are kind of pathologizing boys for being boys. I was having a conversation yeah. with my girlfriend. Now I'm 33. I'm, I'm still considered a millennial, but even when I was a kid, you know, I remember that at recess, we'd all play this game. I'm, I'm Canadian. We grew up in Canada. We called it hockey soccer. So it was basically soccer with full body contact. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> Pretty dangerous. You know, there are some injuries and stuff, but I was thinking like for the most part, just a lot of really fun memories of this, you know, kind of insane game that we were playing. We all lived to tell the tale, thankfully. Um, but I was thinking that a lot of modern boys, you know, if I have a son, they're probably not going to be allowed to do that. You know, they're not going to be able to take a lot of the very necessary risks that I was able to take as a young, as a young boy. And I mean, I guess my question to you is, is not easy, but do you think there's any coming back from this? I mean, you seem to me, and maybe I'm wrong, I hope I'm wrong, to be kind of a voice in the wilderness on this particular issue. Is there any coming back uh, from this and the pendulum swinging more to the center? This being feminism dictating that, that boys are broken girls, basically? Yes, and just the general... Uh, in some cases, the general predisposition against what you call a lot of, you know, positive masculine values in the psychology profession, for example. Yeah, I think there is. I, I think, of course, I do think that there's a way to come back from it. I, um, and I don't think that it's that masculinity in this traditional sense, this traditional positive sense is going to go away because number one is too much fun to be a man. And there's going to be Agreed. men out there who, who just enjoy doing, doing the things that men do the way they do them, building companies, going out and, and conquering things in a positive way. Um, but also sex drives everything. And there's the masculine and the feminine and humans seem to really enjoy that. This goes back a long ways. And I don't know that we're going to just give it up because a, a couple of malcontent loudmouths say that we have to give it up. You're not giving up. I'm not giving it up. My wife's not giving up. Your girlfriend's clearly not giving up. So yeah, there's there's a tremendous amount of hope here. That's great. I'm I'm encouraged. <laughs> that's that's nice to hear. I, I'd love to talk a little bit more about men. So, in particular, a lot of online men's communities slash what a lot of people call the red pill. And again, another reason why I really appreciate your voice. Um, I keep having this slogan in my head: "Make nuance great again." <laughs> I'm so <laughs> like bored. That. I'm so bored by staunch ideologues on all sides. You know, like my engagement with anything political is, has, you know, dithered to basically nothing just because I'm so exhausted by blind faith in ideologies on all sides. Really tired of it. And, you know, the answers you've been giving so far, like you're a very thoughtful person and you're not uh, afraid of nuance. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about your experience in some of these online men's communities slash the red pill. Um, a lot of these guys, and you, you can tell me what you think, but it seems to me these are a lot of men just very hungry for answers that the mainstream isn't giving them, yeah. um, looking for you know reasons for their own perhaps failures in relationships with women, dating, you know, marriage disasters, divorce disasters, et cetera, et cetera. And this is a very general question, but you know, you've kind of um, been engaged in some of those communities, and you've been putting your voice out there in a lot of contentious issues as it relates to what a lot of people call the red pill. I get a lot of guys coming to me who are really influenced by a lot of these red pill um, thinkers and, and ideologues uh, on that side. Uh, I have a very nuanced take on the red pill. I'm sure you do as well. Um, but I mean, what has been your experience of engaging with, with these men and, and that community? And are you taking a step back from that uh, right now? Um, no, not particularly taking, taking a step back. I have been... Um, Unceremoniously, unceremoniously escorted out of certain corners of the red pill community just because I, they don't like my ideas. I question things. Mm. I try to look at things from, from certain angles. And it's what I want to start where you started, which is guys find the red pill community because they're looking for answers. And there's sort of a truism that floats around in the red pill community that people find the red pill when they're hurt, when they're hurting, right? And so whenever you have a group of people like that that are coming together looking for answers, you're gonna have, everyone in the world is gonna show up to give those answers all the way from absolute con men to people who are really well-intentioned and and legitimately doing their best to try to give those answers and, and everything in between. And so when you talk about the red pill community, there's this whole spectrum of personalities. And um, so have I taken a step back? No, I, I mean, I've, I've been ejected from certain quarters and which is fine because if they're going to be that 
that uh, strident in their beliefs. That's, that's not an interesting conversation for me, so I, it's fine. Other corners, um, yeah, there's a little bit of tension going on in the Red Pill community right now. There, there's some, some factions, of course. Whenever you have men, there's going to be factions. And so um, I'm not really beholden to any particular corner of it. I'm just looking. I'm, I just want the conversation. Hmm. Yeah, my favorite line related to anything red pill is by uh, the American political commentator, Michael Malice. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Uh-huh. He has this great line, you take one red pill, not the whole bottle. <laughs> and <laughs> I think that's really good. Yeah. That's isn't good. that great? Yeah, yeah. Because it seems to me that yeah, a lot of guys find that stuff and they're just so thirsty for answers. Again, I'm partially sympathetic to that. I get it. Um, but they just want to consume anyone offering anything that someone calls a, a red pill. Um yeah, I mean, we could spend hours talking about that, but perhaps, uh, perhaps we shouldn't. Maybe frustrating for both of us. Um, well, just just last thought on that. I mean, what would you tell a guy? Because I get these emails all the time, and sometimes I'm a little lost for how to um, approach it. And you know, men who've been hurt in love, men who haven't had the success with women that they're they're looking for, and they're really influenced by a lot of this red pill ideology, this very let's say call it contrarian dating advice in many ways. Um, you know, what would you say to someone who's been hurt in the past? You know, maybe they went through a terrible divorce. They find this stuff and they're so thirsty for answers. They really start investing a lot of time into consuming that content. I mean, what would you say to a guy like that? Um, I would say I, I like what Mal- Michael Malice said. That I've not heard that before. I think that's a really good good way to say it. I've said, I've said in the past that the red pill is a good place to visit, but you don't want to live there. It, meaning it's like any other um, ideology and, and, you know, it's so splintered and, and fractioned and there's, there's so much diversity in that community itself, but uh, so often you, you have in any kind of ideological movement like this, where you have a bunch of people who've decided that they're seeing something that everyone else isn't, there's usually a grain of truth to that. And I think if within the red pill community, there's a large grain of truth to the fact that they're seeing things that other people are not seeing. They're seeing things that my profession of psychology is not seeing for sure. And they're seeing them, a lot of those things fairly clearly, I think. And my profession is not seeing them at all. So that's a big advantage to the red pill community. But at the same time, it's, it's heavy stuff. And um, I I think you have to, with any ideology, and I I do consider it an ideology, you you have to step back at some point. Otherwise you go down the rabbit hole and you never come back. Yeah, that's well put. I really like your line about not living there. And for me, that holds true with any kind of staunch um, ideology. You don't want to live there. So when we spoke uh, two and a half years ago, you probably don't remember, but uh, I just read your book, The Tactical Guide to Women, which I find myself recommending all the time. Uh, I'm still unmarried. And and I was thinking about some of my main fears and hesitations for marriage, because I imagine I'm kind of smack dab in your target market or the, the kind of guys that come to you. I, I imagine I'd be somewhat representative of at least some of those guys. Mm-hmm. One of my main fears, speaking very frankly, um, and I'm sure you'd be, you'd familiar with this fear, you know, a common trope in a lot of these online men's communities and has been for some time is the idea that even if you're having an incredible sex life right up to the wedding, shortly thereafter, there's some kind of drop off. Your sex life dries up, right? There's this talk about dead bedrooms and all of a sudden she doesn't want to do it anymore. And I'm sure there's all kinds of reasons for that, but that's a real fear of mine because Mm -hmm. it's always been very important to me to have an incredible sex life. Um, And I, I'm not willing to give that up whatsoever. And I realize the onus is largely on me to be, you know, keeping that up if I get married someday. Um, but I mean, what is your, what are your, is your general take on that? How true is this trope? Because I talk to some people who say that it's mostly BS, that if you find, you know, a great woman and you work at it, you're both committed to working at it. It doesn't have to be that way. This is kind of nonsense. Other men who, you know, there's endless discussions of this online with men talking about this. What is your general take on that idea? But there's a whole range of outcomes there, and it's it's your standard bell curve. And there's in the average, I guess, is you know that that average right in the middle is probably that the sex life uh, it tapers off a little bit, but it's still good and satisfying for both. The, on one extreme, there's no sex life. On the other, there's the the continuing wild sex life. That those are both, I think, relatively rare compared to the middle, which is you know, the sex life continues. And I think that more important. I think that guys don't 
ask the right questions when they're thinking about getting married and women don't either. Human beings are terrible at focusing on the correct problem. Um, I remember back when, when ATM fees came out, you know, automated teller machines when they first came out and then they started charging a dollar to, to um, go and get your cash out of the machine. And people were just up in arms about this dollar. Meanwhile, their taxes were just going up exponentially at the time, not exponentially, the taxes were increasing rapidly at the time. So people were focused on this dollar fee that they could completely avoid and not focusing on this serious problem that is draining their bank account that they can't avoid. So anyway, that's, that's human nature, focus on the wrong things. And I think that when people are selecting their wives or their husbands, number one, they're not giving enough time typically. And what I mean by that is you have to get past that infatuation phase and then the vetting begins. And the infatuation phase is it can be tracked to some degree with chemical markers in cerebral spinal fluid. For example, we know that there is a, a change in serotonin. I don't know exactly what that means. Nobody knows exactly what that means. If they, if they do, then they're lying to you. But we know that there is a signature change in serotonin in cerebral spinal fluid when people are in that infatuation phase. And along with that goes a slightly altered way of viewing yourself and viewing the other person and sometimes dramatically altered way. So you're only seeing the good in them. You're motivated to see the good and you're not seeing the bad because you're, you're disincentivized to see the bad. So that that's your infatuation phase. When that goes away, you start seeing them a little more as, as fully three-dimensional human beings. They start to get on your nerves in little ways like human beings do. And that's, that's your indication that you're stepping out of that infatuation phase and into to the next phase. That's when the vetting begins. So that could be a good six to 18 months before you even really start seeing the person clearly. And just as my general rule of thumb, I say a year after the infatuation phase, go through four seasons, go through some strains, go through some stress, you know, go, go travel and and the luggage gets lost and she's tired and you're tired and you see how she responds and you respond, how you respond together. You test the relationship a little bit. You watch how she handles herself in, in situations. And with a good long vetting process, values become difficult to hide. Not that people are really hiding them, but when you're in that infatuation phase, you can kind of downplay the down, the bad parts of yourself and they're doing the same thing. And, and maybe you're up, you're, um, speaking about your values in a way that's a little bit putting, giving them a, you know, shining them on just a little bit so that you, you give the impression that you're a better fit than maybe you are, but that stuff gets difficult to maintain with time. And then the values really start to come out and then you can really see what the person is like. Sex is one of those, one of those areas. And there's the four, I think the four big, four or five big areas that causes people to get divorced are kids, money, sex, uh, in-laws and religion. And those are five things that you really want to be looking at during those, uh, during those months after the infatuation phase goes away. And sex is certainly part of that. How do you know the infatuation phase is over? Is it, is it as simple as you say in terms of like this person is starting to get a bit annoying sometimes where before I thought they were cute and endearing? I, th I think you, you watch for the behavioral changes in yourself. That's one of them is that you're noticing more things about them. You're also hiding less things about yourself. You're also returning to your life because it's fairly typical. I don't know if it's more so with women, maybe more so with women that they will retreat from their friendships a bit and focus on you, the man. And when they start to reincorporate other aspects of their life and in the way that they were before they really started getting infatuated with you, there's no clear marker, but I think you watch for those little behavioral shifts to return to normal. Hmm. That's great. Let's talk about money. Coming back to your, uh, your wonderful Twitter feed, another tweet, recent tweet that really caught my attention. I thought was really good quote, shared money goals are greater than communication strategies for predicting marital satisfaction. Money is a proxy for values. Uh, end quote. What are you getting out there? Why is money so important? How is money a proxy for values and relationships? Money represents something to everybody and it's not money. Money represents freedom for some people, the freedom to go explore the world, go live in Indonesia, move from Canada to Indonesia or whatever <laughs> person wants to do. It represents security for some people. And it, I, I don't have anything to back this up in terms of data, but my sense is from working with a lot of couples is that generally speaking, 
money is a little more representative of security and future security for women than it is for men. Although you know, I don't want to paint a, a picture here that that's all they're, they're concerned about. Men aren't concerned about it at all. There's, there's overlapping bell curves here probably, but at the margins and men, I think it represents a little bit more freedom and power to exercise their agency out in the world. Um, and so there, there's a little bit of an inherent conflict between men and women just in general, but, um, any given couple should have a, a, a very clear-headed conversation about what does money mean to you? And more importantly than the conversation, observing each other and how they handle their money and what they do with it and what, how they, what their actions suggest that it represents to them. So if you see a person who is religiously putting 10% of their money in savings, okay, that gives you a little indication of where their values lie with money. It doesn't mean that they don't like to have fun too, but it does say that security and predictability is kind of important to them. That's a useful thing to know. Or if they're racking up all kinds of credit card deck and debt and just you know traipsing around the world and being irresponsible about it. Well, that tells you what money means to them. And it tells you a little bit about what their values are. There's, there's sort of a fly by the seat of their pants kind of person. And if that's not you, then um, you're going to have some difficulties. And when people have when married people have problems over money, it's not, it's not money. It's about these larger themes that money represented them, freedom, security, that sort of thing. Hmm. Yeah, well put. So I, I said in my in my one of my emails to you recently that uh, I was interested in talking about vetting yourself for marriage. Mm -hmm. Because another of my impressions of just a lot of online men's communities, and I get these emails all the time, and I understand why. But a lot of people, for example, come to me looking for advice on uh, vetting a potential partner. Uh, and needless to say, this is, you know, a big part of your working life as well, uh, or at least I imagine given the, the subject matter of your books, but vetting a potential partner, you know, do they check these, these boxes? Do they, um, you know, represent a lot of the things that I'm looking for? What does their past say about their values and all, you know, some of the decisions they've made, but in particular, uh, I can't really speak for women's online communities, but in a lot of uh, men's communities, I see less discussions about vetting yourself for marriage. Mm -hmm. How the hell do you know if you're ready to take that step? And this is something uh, I probably don't have to tell you that I've wrestled with a lot uh, in, in my own life. Like, how do I know I'm ready? Because I see it as such a huge deal. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I think it's a very, very serious, uh, enormously consequential life decision. And I want to make sure I'm ready. So in general, I mean, what are some of your thoughts on how someone can vet themselves for marriage? What are some of the questions they should start asking themselves in terms of whether or not I'm ready to get married to anyone? Yeah. One of the things that I notice in this large umbrella that is the red pill community of all these different factions, there's one topic that I have never seen discussed. It doesn't mean nobody's discussed it. It just means that I haven't seen it discussed and I keep my ear to the ground. And the topic is, here's what I did to screw up my past relationships. I've never heard a red pill mm. guy say that, not a single time. And yep. this is, some of these guys will go on and on about personal accountability and going out there and, and challenging yourself and going out there and, and making sure that you are, uh, what's Jocko Willink's phrase, um, taking extreme accountability, extreme, extreme ownership, extreme ownership for your life. But they never look inward and say, well, let me let me take a little inventory of what I have done to fuck things up in the past in this realm. And I I don't know why that is. I think it's yeah, doesn't matter what I think. I don't I don't know why guys are so hesitant in, in this little realm to talk about it because other guys aren't. You know, if you're not, I've seen so many guys who aren't in the red pill sphere come to me, for example, and say, I need to figure this out. I need to figure out my patterns because I'm not, there's something that I'm not doing wrong. So my first, my first, and maybe my only recommendation is that if you can, if you have a habit of looking at what you've learned from relationships, from the people you grew up with, what you have done in your relationships, and you can look back and you can say, yep, I screwed up there. I screwed up there. I did that right. That was okay. I like that one. But over here, I behaved very badly with this person. I probably ruined that relationship. Um, this time that I felt like uh, she was she was all the worst things in the world. Well, let me take a look and think, what would she say about me in that situation? 
you know, if you can do that and that's a habit for you, then you're probably in good shape. Hmm. Yeah, that's such a great point. I mean, coming back to our discussion earlier about sex and dead bedrooms after marriage and stuff, you see all these guys posting these stories, but they're not talking about the fact that they put on 35 pounds and they became a couch potato and they got lazy and complacent and they stopped actively trying to seduce their wife and they they fell into the same sexual routine. Like Mm -hmm. you don't hear that story, right? It's just, oh, you know, we stopped having sex. So I think that that's a such a good point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you talk a lot about intuition. I've noticed in a lot of your um, speeches and certainly in your book. And this is a subject that's very interesting to me. And again, I get questions about this. How do I know when it's my insecurity versus my intuition? How do I know when it's that little voice that I really should be paying attention to? Um, And you can speak personally if you want, I'll leave that to you. But I mean, how do you know when it's your intuition talking? Do you have any general thoughts on really tuning into that voice? And how do we know when we should be listening? I think for most times you don't know if it's your intuition talking, you get, you get a feeling, right? You wake up in the middle of the night, something's bugging you, or you're, you're walking down the street and something's just eating at you, or you get that pit in your stomach, or you notice that your pulse is a little quicker, you're not sleeping well. You get these little nonverbal communications, which are basically messages from the nonverbal part of your mind, because we have we have these brains that are modular organs and only a little bit of it's verbal, only a little bit of this connected to the words that we're using right here. There's a whole lot of it that is not connected to any, any verbal behavior, but it's still processing information. And we have structures in our brain. Um, one of my favorite structures is a reticular activating system. And part of what it does is it filters out information and it makes decisions about what you think about what what bubbles up to the level of um, verbal processing versus what what get just gets dis, dis, discarded. Sorry, I'm stumbling over my words here. And so some of that stuff that gets discarded, your brain will still start to notice patterns. It'll start to piece things together because your brain is constantly processing information. That's what it does. And so it might piece something together and it might notice that something isn't adding up or something doesn't feel right, or this feels reminiscent of something that in the past that didn't work out well. And so it'll start to talk to you, but how does it talk to you when it's speaking in a nonverbal language? Well, it speaks to you non-verbally and that's where you get these physical sensations. And so you don't always know what it is. You don't know if it's just your imagination running wild, which sometimes it is. You don't know if your brain is piecing something together that you really need to know about. So my advice is for guys, when you get that feeling, any kind of, any kind of weird thing that just doesn't feel right, that your job at that moment is just to stop. Don't make any big decisions. Stop. Think about it. Start putting words to it. Talk about it with a friend if you need to. Journal if you need to. But take it from that realm of the nonverbal and bring it into the realm of the verbal. And that way you don't have to try to make big decisions about do I listen to my intuition or do I not listen to my intuition? It's just a question of is my intuition trying to tell me something here? And so let me try to put words to it. Hmm. That's a really interesting idea. Like all of the information that our body's processing that we literally can't verbalize. There's no words for those sensations, for those feelings. That That's really interesting. Move, moving right along here. I uh, One of my main focuses is jealousy, uh, jealousy mm-hmm. in relationships and helping people work to overcome jealousy in relationships, differentiating between what I call rational and irrational jealousy. Sometimes there's a bit of overlap there, but they're often very distinct experiences. Um, And frankly, I deal mostly with people struggling with what I call irrational jealousy. There's no there, there. Mm -hmm. If a person, man or woman, were to come into your office and start talking about feeling like they've been struggling with jealousy for their whole life, often irrational jealousy, maybe they were burned once in the past, maybe not. Um, What are some of the questions you might start asking them? And just generally, do you have any thoughts on overcoming jealousy in relationships? Jealousy. Yeah, it's a it's a particular kind of experience we're talking about where we want to guard our mates, basically. And it's it's an it's a type of anxiety that's not really like any other. I think we can all any any human being who's been in any kind of relationship can relate to that sensation being different than any other sensation. It's not like being afraid of elevators or getting on airplanes. It's it's a whole different thing that really gets you at your core that this person could be betraying you or or abandoning you. And that's probably what it comes down to, betrayal and abandonment. And so I, when somebody comes in with any kind of anxiety and particularly those sorts of existential anxieties, I always start with the premise that 
there's something rational about this. People will say it's irrational. And that's not a bad word in the sense that if we're looking at it from a purely logical standpoint, a lot of times it doesn't make sense. But you have to remember that I think what one of the things we need to remember about our brains is that there are different parts working with different pieces of logic. And so the, the logic that our verbal brains use is not the same logic that our survival-driven brain will use. So our survival-driven brain uses a kind of logic that doesn't make sense to us rationally, but at the same time, it's a good thing for us to for it to be worried about it. And it will use a lot of logic that has to do with things like sucker bets, like where it puts its money is going to be the safest place to put its money, even if that's completely irrational from our rational side, from its point of view, from the emotional mind's point of view, that's the perfectly safe bet. It's better to be, from its point of view, it's better to be a little overly jealous and overcompensate in the realm of trying to guard this mate than it is to be trusting. From its point of view, that makes more sense. From our rational mind's point of view, that doesn't make sense because we know we can see forward. Our emotional brain mind can't see forward, but our rational mind can see forward and see that that's going to screw things up. That's going to cause problems in the relationship that it already has and is going to continue. And so we have this mind that's divided against itself. And when you can give yourself a little grace and say, all right, I don't really like what this part of my mind is doing because it's not serving me well in the long run, at least I can understand why it's doing it. And if I can understand why it's doing it and give it a little bit of grace, then I can see it from a distance and it's not so overwhelming. And, and that's typically how to start in my, not just in my estimation, but in, in a lot of the anxiety research, that's a good way to start with these heavy anxieties that really get to the core of you. Yeah, that's great. That that um, ties in nicely with something that I, I sometimes talk with people about in terms of people approaching me with experiences of really obsessive jealousy and feeling really torn up and often in a great deal of distress. And I'll sometimes ask them, like, what's the payoff? What are you getting out of this? What is mm -hmm. what is the reward that on some level you're getting from this jealousy? Sometimes it's things like I have fears of intimacy and I, this prevents me from really being able to commit. Um, it's often just fears around if I build this person up so much, you know, or if I prevent myself from building this person up too much, if I stop myself from investing too much in the relationship, I have less to lose. Um, so I think that's that's fantastic. That's that's so important. I agree. One more question on marriage and and really kind of um, deciding who to marry because this is a is a topic that I've been diving into recently, um, and there's a lot of different views on it. How important, in your view, is raw physical attraction when deciding who to marry? Because some people, like there's some thinkers who say that it's actually kind of a warning sign. If you meet someone and you just want to consume them, you're just so incredibly attracted to them. Some people would say, would look at that and say, that's actually not a good thing. Whereas other people would say, this is absolutely important. You have to be with someone you're just, you know, 10 out of 10 attracted to. What's your take on that? Um, 10 out of 10 is a high bar, but I... I... Physical attraction is obviously, particularly for men, women can adjust a little more to, they can become, they have, women generally have a capacity to become attracted to a guy provided he's not, you know, uh, utterly repellent to her um, or, you know, just, just not attractive, but men, it, we, we like what we like. We, we, we're attracted to what we're attracted to. And if it's not there, it's a problem. And I tend to think of it like this. There, there are two groups of people. There are the people who are, you find really attractive and there are people who with whom you have shared values. And you can go to the people who are most attractive to you and you can try to find the person there whose values are most complimentary to your own. Or you can go to the group of people who have shared values, values are complementary to your own, and you can find attractive people over there. And to my way of thinking, it's more productive to start with the values and look for the attractive people than it is to start with the attraction and look for the values. Although, you know, it can certainly work. It has. I would imagine that's continue. often a tough sell for men, <laughs> that message. It's, it's a tough sell for younger men. It's not such a tough sell for guys who've been through the ringer particularly mm. if they've been through the family court system and so forth. Right. So I lied to you. One more uh, question about marriage. And this okay. isn't, I, I, this time I'm not quoting you. I'm quoting uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson, who I'm sure you're familiar with, but I encountered this quote, I think it was on Instagram or something and it leapt out at me and I wanted to ask you what you thought about it. So Jordan Peterson said, how to know if they are the one, you can't discover that you have to decide it. And I thought that was a really interesting and succinct way of, uh, 
of summing up that idea. Because when people talk about the one, you know, with a capital O, it kind of drives me crazy. I don't really buy into that way of thinking. What do you think about that? Deciding that someone's the one? Well, yeah, let's talk about the one, first of all. And that's, that's a, one of the ideas that comes out of the various red pill communities is that there is no one, which is true. I mean, you can, you can, be compatible with any number of people. There is no one, but that it's also, uh, it can be dangerous to buy into this idea that there's a one because then you get convinced that this person is the one and maybe she's a disaster for you, but she's the one. So you have to keep pursuing the one because she's the one and it's it's silly nonsense. Read me Jordan Peterson's quote again. You have to- How to know if they are the one, you can't discover that, you have to decide it. Yeah. I have to think about that. My, I've not heard it before. My first, my initial reaction to it is that he's talking about the decision to be devoted to somebody. And Mm. there is certainly a decisional aspect to that where you decide, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to devote myself to this person and see what we can build together. Particularly if um, your reason for wanting to get married is you want to build a family or something yeah, you better you better make a decision early on that well, not early on. You better make a decision before you step up to the altar that you're going to put some effort into this. I think that's what he's saying. What do you think that means? No, that that was my reading as well. Yeah, which which appeals to me on some level. It's it's like um because there's endless women out there, there's endless men out yeah. there. There's so many options with Tinder and all the apps yes. and social and media and yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's absolutely, you know, it, it's um it's a bit daunting to think I've got to sort out from all of these, you know, incredibly attractive people, like who's the one. And like, but it, I like the idea uh, on some level, it does appeal to me, this idea of deciding this is my woman, this is it, or mm-hmm. this is my man. This is it. You know, if, if it's a woman speaking, there's something about that decision that is uh, appealing to me on some level. And I, I read that quote the same way you did, that it's about that level of devotion, um, not being blind to their faults, or idealizing them in any way, but just making that decision. Um, yeah. There's something about that that's appealing to me. Well, and and maybe what's appealing about it is that we know that a relationship takes work along the way, all yes. along the way. And there's going to be rough patches. And if you go into it deciding that I'm going to put effort into this and we're not going to just get derailed by the first problem that comes along, we're going to work through it, then obviously you've got a, a much better chance of success there. Absolutely. Yeah. Just a couple more questions for you before I let you go. And this is more of a personal question, but this is another rabbit hole I've been going down lately in terms of um, goal setting, planning out your life, you know, planning out a map of the future, um, really deciding what you want and pursuing that with gusto. Just speaking personally, how do you approach this topic, life planning or, or goal setting? I mean, do you have any general thoughts on like, do you have like a 20 year plan for Sean Smith or anything like that? How do you approach this stuff? Or are you more kind of um, in the moment making decisions? No, I've, I've always had a, a short-term plan and, and a long-term plan. And uh, the short-term plan is is given to alterations because things change. But I, th- I think you need to have your eye on on some kind of point in the horizon. Hmm. And well, you know, but- life life gets in the way, but you do the best you can to get there. Because what else are you going to do? You're just going to wander around in circles. Nah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I really lied to you because <laughs> my last question is about marriage. <laughs> I forgot that I wanted point. to, I forgot that I wanted to to finish up with this, but I was, I was thinking of you because I was having a conversation with my girlfriend very recently and uh, people have problems with these terms, but I consider myself a very masculine person. She's very feminine. And we were talking about the way that we see marriage and the way that we approach this topic generally. And I think in my first conversation with you, we were talking about risk reward, high risk, high reward um, is, is marriage basically, or at least it has potential to be. Mm-hmm. And I realized in my conversation with, with my girlfriend that I err too much on focusing on all the risks. And she realized in general, she focuses more on the rewards, only focusing on the potential rewards. What um, a beautiful conversation. I love that. That's great. That's yeah. It was, it was really interesting. And it made me think of you because I was getting ready for this, this conversation. So you can speak to me or you can speak to modern men in general, but, and again, coming back to the red pill, I think a lot of men, myself included, a lot of the people in the red pill community, certainly undersell marriage. There aren't a lot of people out there making the case for the potential rewards of a good marriage. Um, So, I mean, sell me marriage. (laughs) What is the potential upside 
to a good marriage? What am I, you know, what are some of the rewards that maybe I'm not thinking as much about? Well, I think the the biggest one is the possibility of building something bigger than yourself with somebody other than yourself. Hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a lonely existence to be thinking about me, me, me. And so many guys out there have been rightfully scared away from marriage and commitment. And, and there are some real risks to it, particularly in the U S I know, I think in Canada too, I don't think it's great in Canada, the, the family court system where the judges are capricious, they're unaccountable. They overwhelmingly defer to the woman. And so a guy has to be very careful and thoughtful about how to approach it legally. But that legal question is not the only question. There's, there's an existential question. And if, if all you're worried about is, well, I want to make sure I have all my money when I die. Well, okay, then, then you should do that. And, and I, and I don't mean that to sound sarcastic. If, if that's what gets you through and that's what helps you on your mission, whatever your mission is, and that that's the approach that helps you complete your mission, then by all means do that. But there's an existential question too of, okay, what, what are you going to do when you're 80, when you're 90, if you live that long and your mission is pretty much done, you can take on new little challenges, but there's no big thing ahead of you. Maybe you've built a, a nice bank account, but me personally, I would like to be able to look back and know that I have built something bigger than myself with somebody else. And, you know, that's, that's my decision. I don't know if that's your decision, but it's, it's, um, it's it's a consideration that guys should should take into account while they're thinking about the legal and monetary side of marriage. That's great. Well, Dr. Smith, I really appreciate your time. This was uh, another really great discussion. What is the number one way people can connect with you online? I have a website, docsmith.co, and I'm on Twitter at Iron Shrink. I don't do any other social media. Yes, oh, follow Dr. Right. Smith on a, Twitter. I have a YouTube channel that I update occasionally. And just search for my name. It's easy to find. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Smith, thanks so much for this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Zachary. It's good to see you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Humans in Love. If you'd like to learn more about my guests, my work, or you'd like to listen to back episodes of the podcast, please visit humansinlove.com. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Humans in Love using your podcast app, choice. If you're a fan of Humans in Love and you'd like to help keep the show going and help me spread the word, please take 30 seconds out of your day to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Before I let you go, remember that life is short, so let's make it count. And thank you, as always, for your listenership and support. I'll talk to you again very soon.